One of my business partners says this a lot, and it's and I go back to it myself mentally a lot too. Is you say, you know, the people that got you here might not be the same people that get you to the next stage. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have the infamous Matthew Tringali in the house. Matt, thanks for coming on. Awesome to be here, as always. Pleasure to have you on, brother. I want to talk a little bit about, I want to cover a bunch of stuff here, okay. but let's start specifically with what you have going on today. You have recently made more of a push specifically into expanding the consulting business that you run. You're super focused on the remote team member placement. And I want to start on this topic. I feel like at this current point in the game, when I ask people about working with remote team members and specifically with offshore, we're past the point of people being like, well, I don't know if it's feasible. The folks that aren't doing it, they're mm -hmm. like, yeah, you know, yeah. I ha like they, they just understand, they understand we're past the point of questioning the viability. And so it's more like, I don't want to do it, but I know it works. I know it's viable in terms of the frontier of where we go with offshore, where we go with remote. I want to hear about the cutting edge that your client base is working with in terms of how high in the organization, mm -hmm. right. can you promote somebody that is in another country and that you may never meet in person? How far can we take this thing, brother? What have you seen? Yeah, I, I love that question because there's definitely a trend happening. You know, I used to tell people that, um, you know, that having a remote team or having a virtual assistant on your team uh, can be your unfair advantage. It's like, hey, look, you know, this is going to set you apart from your competition. But I really no longer say that. Now, I'm like, if you're not using virtual assistants, you're going to get left behind uh, because it is ubiquitous. Your competitors are using virtual assistants. And so it's going to be hard to remain competitive uh, with that if you're not also leveraging this tool in your business. But the trend is interesting. I mean, I've been hiring virtual assistants for over 10 years and I've done it all the wrong ways. And, uh, you know, when I first started, I literally hired somebody in India for like $1 per hour. And there's doesn't skill seem like a great idea. No, I mean, their skill level was like very low. I, there's no way I could have spoken to them. I couldn't understand them if we were speaking to each other, you know, and they did some things. So it was fine. I, it was a learning experience for me and, and we did some things. For a long time, you know, there was just this idea of like, okay, you can get virtual assistants and they can basically follow a checklist. Maybe you're okay with them talking to tenants maybe you're probably not okay with them talking to owners. And that kind of persisted for a long time. But now when we have clients coming to us, you know, they're no longer asking those questions. They're asking the questions you're asking, which is they're saying um, no longer like, oh, cool. Well, what can I get for $4 per hour? They're now saying like, hey, I'm not price sensitive. What's the best I could get? What's the Cadillac of remote team members? Mm. Um, you know, I want to actually highly leverage this situation. And so, yeah, and we've been doing it that way for probably at least five years. I mean, I had uh, one of our remote team members that she started just doing reception stuff. She worked her way up to being the general manager of our whole property management company and was managing other remote team members, doing all sorts of things. We've since transitioned that particular person to actually manage the consulting business. So she's now managing uh, four, five other remote team members on the consulting business. And so, um, 
I always tell people, stop asking the question, what can a remote team member do for me? And just always ask, what can they not do for me? Um, and the only things they can't do in the property management world are get in a car and drive to your properties. And the specific things that your state license requires a licensed person to do, which in most states, you know, that there's a lot of latitude for what unlicensed people can do underneath the supervision of a licensee. Um, so yeah, and you know, the United States does not have, we've not cornered the market on human resource, right? I mean, (laughs) right. Of course. But, uh, and and when you say it out loud, you're like, yeah, of course. But a lot of people are just kind of starting to make that mental shift of like, oh yeah, well, yeah, of course. Like what, so what exactly is out there? And so, yeah, we're doing all sorts of cool, creative things, um, higher and higher up the ladder. And on the higher end, what industries, what common backgrounds, what are the common thread that you see for those higher end performers that you're hiring in that capacity? You know, a lot, we are hiring people with specific skill sets and degrees. Um, so if it's bookkeeping, you know, we're hiring people with finance degrees, um, you know, if they're doing process architecture type work, we're hiring people who are engineers by training or degree, you know, things like that. But mm. a lot of it is more on the soft skill side. I mean, I, when I'm hiring for positions like that, I place a very high premium on curiosity. You know, people that are lifelong learners, they read on their own, they're curious about things, they research things on their own. Um, because, you know, people with that just ethos um, can really pick up anything you want to throw at them. Let's talk management oversight. There's a big debate about working direct versus working through an agency. I personally have gone in the direction of hiring uh, people that I want to hire myself, but that finder, that recruiting function has brought great value. I've worked with you in the past. There's no right or wrong answer. You got right. good people on both sides of this. How do you think about the pros and the cons and the case to be made on both sides of this kind of axiom? Yeah. So, I mean, there's tons of great staffing agency options that service the property management industry and they bring a good value in what they do. And they, you know, highly leverage the Philippines and Mexico um, and they help take care of payroll and HR issues that come up over time. And, you know, they set up shop in those particular countries to provide certain benefits to those remote team members in those countries. It's, it's, there's an easy button there. There's an easy button there for sure. And, um, you know, it, it, it makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. And obviously that's been very common. Um, I've been direct hiring for a long time and it's been my preference. And it's, I think a shift that's starting to happen more and more as people have become more comfortable with remote team members to, see a lot of the value in hiring direct. So for us, a lot of the value is um, a truly global search. So we've hired from over 30 different countries. And as we have uh, leaned into that heavily over the years, we, you know, you do notice trends in certain parts of the world where there are, you know, uh, centralized areas of expertise. Uh, so, you know, if we go to Eastern Europe, there tends to be a lot more kind of tech skills there, um, you know, things like that. So, um, so that brings a lot of benefit. And then the control that we can have when we hire direct, you know, we, um, can, ha- we can pay more than somebody who is working for a business. Um, and, you know, and then they have to take care of their own taxes and benefits, whatever the case may be. Uh, but we've found for our experience with the remote team members that we work with, 
that they that works a lot better for them. And so they tend to they tend to make more money overall, even after they cover those expenses. And then it gives us a lot more headroom to also kind of promote and give them raises and things like that. And so the the finances can be just a lot more manageable, especially when you start multiplying this. If you just have one remote team, remember the difference between five dollars an hour and nine dollars an hour is not significant. But if you get to where you have 10 remote team members on your team or even five, you know, that adds up. Yeah, certainly there's the overhead. Let's address that key ongoing value prop of the administration, though. The regulation, some people, frankly, don't give a rip. They're like, you know, I'm going to wire the money by some means, and I couldn't care less about the regulations in another country, which I am not going to enter and is not my problem. Other people are dramatically more compelled by the concern of cross-border regulatory compliance what is your understanding of the state of play of how concerned a stateside business owner needs to be on Bangladesh law as it pertains to them employing someone there? Yeah, great, great question. Of course, that's a common question that we deal with. First of all, I always give the disclaimer, right? I'm not a CPA, not a tax attorney. Not a uh, lawyer. Not, okay, not a lawyer. Um, but, you know, but I have been doing this for about 10 years. We've now done hundreds of placements with other businesses. So I can tell you what we do and why we do it. So... So first, there's the stateside concern, and it turns out that the IRS is actually very clear about this particular question for the IRS. And so they say, if you're paying a non-U.S. citizen to do work outside of the United States, which this qualifies as them doing work outside of the United States, then there's no tax withholdings held on them whatsoever, and it's considered foreign-sourced income. So in other words, it's income earned in the country in which that person is working. So basically, as the IRS is concerned, it's a 100% non-issue there's nothing to file in the IRS. It's just a non thing. Uh, we do typically um, have our remote team members fill out what's called a W-8 Ben. And that's just a way for the remote team member to sort of declare, yep, I live in another country um, and I don't live here in the United States and I'm not a U.S. citizen. So you're basically just getting their declaration of those facts. Um, then there's this question of tax trees that exist between the United States and other countries. And I've read through a lot of these tax treaties. And uh, the first thing to note is a lot of them were written and passed in the 60s and 70s and haven't even been updated since then, which is sort of interesting in and of itself. Uh, but mostly the tax treaters are still concerned with when you have citizens of one country working in another country. Not really. So, again, not applicable to this situation. Then, separately, you have this issue uh, of, you know, when these folks are working in their home country, you know, what does that mean for them? And, and the answer is just it depends. Every country is a little different in terms of like, okay, you know, uh, is there a registered agent you should have in this country or what does this look like? But the quick and short of it is that in most countries, um, you know, that person can decide that they are a freelancer. Um, and you pay them like a freelancer and you can send them money directly and they're responsible for paying their own taxes and, uh, and it works out just fine. Some countries are more complicated than others. So Mexico, for example, the tax situation there is quite complicated. So in Mexico, we, you know, we have a service available to our clients where they can get set up with a local CPA to help those uh, VAs, those remote team members in Mexico handle that situation. Um, so, but... The reality is, again, done this hundreds of times. Is there some risk factor? Like maybe, I guess, theoretically, um, but it is uh, effectively zero, right? I mean, it just, it never sort of comes to a head. Um, again, other countries like folks we have in Romania, they will set up 
their own basically LLC in Romania. We pay through the LLC and that kind of addresses the issue. So the bottom line is there are ways to work around this. And for anybody that is particularly concerned, then we actually recommend that they can use uh, Upwork as a payment platform because Upwork now has what they call a bring your own talent feature where you can have a remote team member and say, okay, great. I just want Upwork to be able to pay them. Uh, and it's only 8%. And, and so it's that it's the remote team members way of clearly setting themselves up as a freelancer through the Upwork platform. And you can pay through that. And then that gives you that uh, extra barrier between you and the remote team member. I didn't know that. And we use something else. We use a, a utility called Pilot. Yeah. What else in addition to Upwork exists? Is this Does Gusto offer an international function in this way? So Gusto has available a payment platform that you can use. There are services out there. Um, uh, Deal is, is one that I've seen. And then there's another one that um, we've recently engaged conversations with called Lano. And, and these platforms um, provide two different levels of service that if you wanted to do, you could do. Uh, one is called contractor management and the other is called employee of record. Um, and so the way these work is, again, the contractor management piece would be kind of similar to what I just described with Upwork, where, you know, effectively they could get it onto this platform and be set up as a contractor with with an agreement and you can just pay them and it's relatively inex inexpensive. And then the employee of record service is one that is a lot more complicated, where they work with basically a local agency in those countries uh, where those local agencies can basically be set up as a registered agent. You could go through that. And that turns out to be quite expensive. Um, you know, so, you know, we don't have any clients for going that route because, you know, it, it would effectively um, just add a, a lot of costs that removes one of the benefits you may be doing this. Um, and, and perceivably wouldn't add the value that you're looking to get out of that situation. So you've been in the consulting game doing this, the hiring piece for a while now. This is kind of on the, the backside of a lot of property management. You've been involved in property management in multiple iterations. You ran your own uh, shop with a partner. You're a part of a roll-up play. Now you're doing this. There's a lot of trends. There's a lot of shift in the industry. What gets you really excited about what feels new directionally about where the industry is headed? Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of things new, but what gets me excited, actually, it's interesting because, um, you know, right now we're at LARPA Broker Owner and, you know, and a lot of folks here at LARPA Broker, you used to talk to them and, and, and a lot of us have heard a lot of the speeches that things we've learned from vendors like you before about, you know, kind of revenue and what should our revenue look like? What should our staffing expenses look like? But the reality is, you know, I, I, they raised their hands at the keynote and um, I think it was probably 40% of the room were new there. And, you know, sat, sitting down at the table with this one uh, gentleman and was kind of just quickly got to some good conversation. And uh, he told me, you know, managing about 450 doors and he has about three people. And I said, I said, man, you, you probably need at least two more people, you know, working your company. So I can't afford that. And I said, well, what's your uh, revenue per unit? And he said, well, about $75. And I said, Ooh. okay, well, I said, uh, issue number one is we need to double or triple your revenue per unit as quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, and his rents were a little bit lower, so that makes it a little trickier. But honestly, it's that same thing that still really drives me. The fundamentals. Up. The fundamentals of like, let's get your revenue per unit up. Let's get your staffing the way it needs to be. And let's get you as the business owner to the place where this is making a lot of money for you. Um, and so, you know, and in this particular 
guy's case, uh, you know, he was doing really, really well as a broker, doing a lot of buying and selling. And that's what happens for a lot of folks, right? When you have brokerage or have maintenance or have whatever, you actually have this property management business that is probably losing you money. Underperforming. It's subsidized. It's subsidized. Uh, and for some people, maybe that's fine. They're just like, look, this is just my top of the funnel thing that I do to feed this other business. But, um, but yeah, that's what drives me to say, no, let's really make this a very uh, healthy standalone business unit for you. Tell me more about your journey and your evolution as an entrepreneur. We met maybe six, seven years ago, yeah, probably, some, somewhere yeah. around there. Um, I have experienced a shift and acceleration and your identity kind of morph several times. And that's happened to myself as well. And that's the nature of entrepreneurship. It's right. the nature of growth. It's the nature of being in the game. It's the thing that we get that is kind of characterized as a bonus. Like, well, the money is the primary thing, but I think really for most of us, if you invert that, that's the reality. At least it is for me. It's the personal transformation and the growth mm -hmm. that is primary and the money follows it. And the, yeah. the faster the iteration cycle of my identity shift, the changing of my attachments, the more money does tend to follow. Talk to me about your journey over this last six or seven years. What's your experience been like as an entrepreneur? Yeah, well, I mean, maybe that's why I was so passionate about the fundamentals because, you know, I always tell people my main qualification in helping other folks right now is I've made more mistakes than you have. And, uh, and I'm a good teacher. So I like learning from my mistakes and teaching other folks from that. So yeah, I, I did what I just described. I was that company that was not profitable and was doing brokerage and maintenance and, you know, these other things and didn't even know I wasn't profitable, right? Because I was conflating uh, all of those finances together. And so, um, yeah, we went through a major shift, quickly grew back when anybody could grow a property management business. I thought I was special. I wasn't. It turns out we all could grow businesses back then. And uh, we got to about 475 doors. And I just realized as we added more doors, we were actually adding more chaos, right? Like it was, you know, it was that mindset of where, like- Where were you? Like, was there any, any moment that was emblematic of that realization? Because on the one hand, honestly, getting 475 doors, like that's pretty cool. That's a real high point. Mm -hmm. Was there any like inflection point where it just became like overtly obvious to you? Or was it a slow kind of un coming to that realization? You know, the, the, the moment that sticks out in my mind was actually um, at PM Grow, you know, several years ago, four years ago now, whatever it was, when you guys had done the study that you did. And I, I'll never forget that moment because it felt like a needle could drop in the room, right? When you guys sort of like announced like, hey, guys, 6% uh, profitability is the industry average. And actually, here's the percentage of people that are at like zero or less. And I'm looking at it going, knowing I was in the study, and I didn't know exactly where I was on that map, but I'm thinking, yeah, I'm probably one of those guys at zero, actually, right? Um, and so that was probably like my wake-up call, realizing like, yeah, this just isn't what I want. This is not working for me. And again, we were making money, right? We were doing maintenance and brokerage, but I just realized this is not financially healthy. I really want each one of these businesses need to stand on its own two feet, mm -hmm. you know? So... Um, but yeah, we were just adding more staff, adding more doors, and just adding more chaos. I was very stressed out. I always joke, right? Like the, the entrepreneur is the only person that will work 80 hours a week so they can work no hours a week. But as I grew the business, I was actually working more and more hours a week. And, and, and you know, it wasn't good for my family. Had the laptop. But my wife got to the point where she just hated my laptop, mm. right? Oh, um, yeah. yeah. You can relate. relate <laughs> it's, a, it's a gross feeling, frankly. It is. It is. Absolutely. And... um. 
So yeah, I mean, I just got really serious, like drop dead serious. And, um, and we, we had an institutional client with about 150 doors and, uh, it was a natural time to transition away from them, but we, we got rid of those. We had a multifamily complex with about 75 doors, got rid of that and just realized like, Hey, we need to niche down figure out what we're good at and not be piddling. We had some commercial stuff that we were piddling in some HS, HOA stuff we were mm. piddling in, but we said, no, we, here's our target client. We need to get really serious. Drilled it down, um, and, and started raising fees. So, um, you know, we were low. I mean, I don't know what our revenue per unit was because we weren't doing a good job tracking it, but we were probably one of those companies that was around 120 or something like that. And like, and well, basically the deck is stacked against you. Yeah, of course. The best management company in the world with $120 right. RPU. No, it just ain't going to work. No, it's not going to work. And, and, and you want to deliver more customer service and didn't even realize we literally cannot, mm -hmm. right? Like we're not properly uh, allocated to be able to even do what we want to do. So, um, so we, uh, and this is back before resident benefit packages were a thing and pet fees were a thing. Like we just, you know, got internal about it and started figuring out, okay, how do we leverage all of these things? And, um, so over the course of about 18 months, we got our revenue per unit up to about $283. From, well, okay. So what was your guess of what the starting point was? Uh, around 120 to 130. <sighs> 18 yeah. months, 18 months, 120 to 130 to 285. Yeah. That that's insane. Yeah. We just got really serious and we kind of gamified it. Right. It's like, I mean, I'm a very competitive, like the numbers, like to gamify things. I get a Duolingo every day and check my stats. <laughs> so we just gamified all of this. We're just like, all right, these are what the numbers should be. How do we get there? Drew out the map, figured it out, had an 18 month plan. Yeah. Got to 283. Um, we completely, and then, you know, what was really interesting is we were staffed in a way that our staff was not really bought into the changes we needed to make at that point. Tried to get them to buy in, tried to help them understand, you know, the value of what needed to change. But at the end of the day, also during that 18 month period, we actually turned over pretty much our entire staff. Can you, well, that, that is also insane. This is getting a little dark here. Yeah. Can you verbalize the feedback, the the sentiment, the underlying sentiment that belied their resistance? Oh yeah, I mean all the common things like, um, well, what is our what does our client pay us for? What what is the management fee supposed to cover if we're not going to do X, whatever X might be, right? And uh, and trying to help them understand, like, nope, you know, management fee covers this core scope of service. Please articulate it for me. Oh gosh, off the top of my head, you know. This um, is important verbiage though, to understand the distinction. Okay, here. so like so a little example might be is you know, we had one guy on our team that his job was to just go out and do whatever we need to do out at properties, right? Field work. And field work. Prior to our shift, we would willy-nilly send them out on any errand we needed to send them out on. But when we made the shift, we said, okay, um, and this is where I told my team, I said, look, every time he leaves the office, a work order gets created. And here's the thing you need to understand about every work order that gets created. Either the owner pays for it, the tenant pays for it, or I pay for it. And if I pay for it, it means I'm feeding my kids less this month. I don't want to pay for those work orders. So we need to get smart and figure out, like, when we send them out on an errand, the owner or the tenant should generally be paying for that. Um, things like that, right? Enforcing the scope of services. Enforcing the scope of services. Back to blocking and tackling. Yeah. That's going to be a relevant conversation 20 years from now. Yeah. <laughs> regardless of what happens and regardless of what people like me can facilitate with technology, talking about a scope of services. Yeah. In a service-based business, 
Absolutely. That's right. That's an inherent part of the challenge. There are certainly intrinsic uh, characteristics about the industry. And one of them is that in a service-based business, it is whatever you want. Property management is whatever you want. Right. You can make it high-end, low-end. You can offer a lot for the management fee, a little bit for the management fee. The key differentiator is, is it defined? Whatever it is, is it written down? And are you enforcing it accordingly? And it sounds like that's what you did. You just yes. got clear on yeah. what you were and were not going to do for such and such a fee. That's right. Yeah, I got really clear on it. So, you know, went to 283 revenue per unit. Um, and we totally changed our staff around. So we leaned that much more heavily into remote team members, basically set our entire team up with the remote team members. This was kind of the genesis of you becoming becoming the poster child for yeah. RTMs. Yeah. And so we got our DLER up to 4.8, right? Which meant, Can you explain what DLER yeah, is? Yeah. So basically, so our DLER, which is direct labor efficiency rate, is basically a way of saying, right, for every dollar of revenue that we earn, how many, uh, or I'm sorry, for every dollar we pay our staff, how many dollars of revenue are we generating? The inverse of that is basically just what percentage of revenue are you paying to your operational staff, people who are frontline working with owners and tenants and vendors. And so prior to this, you know, we were probably spending about 50% of our revenue on staff, maybe more, but at least 50% of our revenue on that operational staff. With the shift, we got to the point where uh, we were spending just over 20% of our revenue on operational staff. And what I love about DLER is there's lots of revenue you can change and expenses you can change that quite frankly, take a bit of effort and actually only move the needle a little bit. Like one change, for example, is we actually went from a brick and mortar office to a completely virtual office. And you would think like, well, that's a huge change that probably had a huge impact on your you know, finances. The reality is it wasn't like that significant compared to what you could do with DLER. So the bigger the line item, the bigger the opportunity there is for savings. Yeah. So uh, so we then went from basically you know zero percent profit to about thirty percent profit. We had fifty one percent of our revenue going to uh, owner discretionary earnings. And well, 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 it wasn't zero, right? It was a negative number. Yeah, because you were negative. you were a yeah. part of the NARPM accounting yeah. standards. Yeah. Which back to the fact when these things are how is that possible? How can you run a negative right. number when you conflate right. it and you blend it all together? That's right. Huge part of the service that the Clarity the NAS has provided. Provided is for people to kind of parse, thing, parse these, th these things out individually. When you say 20% of labor going to your... 20% of revenue going to revenue going operational labor. Right. Yeah. So that's roughly approximate to a 5.0 DLER. Yeah, we were at 4.8. And yep. that's a really smoking number. Yeah. Here's the interesting part of the conversation. You go from 475 down to what? What what was the unit count at this point? 175. All right. So you're you're peaking. This is it's just really interesting. You're you're inverting things here. Yes. Your unit count has gone from like at 475, this kind of uh yeah. of an environment, like yeah, you're kind of somebody. Yeah. I'm a baller. I'm almost at five hundred units. Right? Five hundred <laughs> units. Now 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 uh A 175, you know, maybe not as eye-popping of a stat, right. and directionally, right. <laughs> it's going in the wrong direction. Yeah. And this is the interesting thing about profit. Unless, you know, like, unless you're bringing your bank statements, like, there's nothing to show. No, yeah. You know, you, you could bring your P&L, but generally speaking, the things people are talking, I, I, you tell me, how common is it 
for you to be talking to a peer and for them to reference their net operating income as a percentage. Yeah, no, not not at all common. Yep. And what's the next best proxy? I mean, do you find folks that are conversant enough to talk about DLER? Is that the number when I am talking to property management company, there's um there are some numbers I like to get straight to. One is revenue per unit. And a lot of people, and that you can reason that you can you can verbally help somebody back into that if they don't know what it correct. is. Correct. So when they don't know, then I just start with the quick and dirty. How many units do you have? What is your roughly average monthly revenue you're making as a property management company? Right. And that's the the quick and dirty revenue per unit. It's not the fine tuned, but it gives you in the ballpark. Mm-hmm. So if I know revenue per unit, and then the second number I'd like to know is staff per unit. If I know those two numbers, it tells me like. 70 to 80 percent of what i need to know about where a company's at and probably what they need to do next yeah and i love the what you're doing there i mean this is one of the things that i actually talk about with my salespeople is doing what i would call sales math mm-hmm. sales math is doing just enough math to solve for the fewest number of variables in order to understand the context in which a person is operating in and if you yep. understand that context you understand where to probe and where yep. to solve the disappointing reality is that you can still be at break even at a $300 RPU. It's a lot harder than being break even at a $170 yeah. RPU. Right. Um, so there's like an order, there's a sequencing. Generally, the philosophy and the approach that we take is to start with revenue, to then look at the labor and cost structure, to then graduate to looking at churn, and then lastly, to looking at growth. Yes. Early on, some of the conversations that you and I had were around sales marketing. It's a passion of mine. It's my bent. It's my orientation. I'm probably irrationally biased towards it just because it's the skills that I have available, most accessible in my toolbox. How do you think about growth now, having gone through this journey, hearkening back to what we just talked about, 475 to 175? So it's like your your kind of your status is like decreasing, even though your profits and your lifestyle is increasing. How do you relate to the growth conversation now, the emphasis, the oper- operationalizing of that function? What are your thoughts and reflections on sales and marketing now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think through it very similar to what you just said. I mean, I think through it as sort of like a four-step process for a company to go through. The first is just systems, organization, processes. I'll be talking about that you know, later today here at the conference. So start with that, just sort of structurally organize, make sure you're, you, you know how to manage your team. And then the second is teams, right? So make sure your team is set up in a way, are you leveraging your remote team members? Do you have the right people in the right seats? Um, and then from there, really focus on that profit. So, okay, great. Got the right systems, got the right people. And then and similarly with you, like when it comes to profit, I always start with top line revenue, right? Because it's just like, look, I, you can only squeeze so much juice out of a small apple, right? It's like, okay, let's get this juicy apple and then you can start backing the profit out. The last piece I, I focus on is growth. And really, if you do those first three things, the only thing you really need in growth is to make sure you're replacing your churn. And, you know, as, as all of us, you know, I think it's Tony Robbins has said, right? If you're not growing, you're dying kind of thing. And, and property and, management feels quite literal. Yeah, right? I mean, the last two years, I mean, a lot of companies and industries are struggling with churn with all the sell-off that's happening, all the institutional money that's coming in, so on and so forth. So you do want to make sure you are replacing your churn or remain a healthy company. Um, but from there, I mean, there's a great opportunity to set up a lifestyle business without having to worry about like, oh, I need to be adding 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 doors a month, you know, kind of thing. It's like, that's great if that's your aspiration, but it doesn't have to be. 
Yeah. And if it isn't, then what is the aspiration? When I interact with entrepreneurs, I find that they, and I'm talking about me, are very susceptible to guilt trips. The ideas of what should be, what I should be doing as a business business owner. The guy on the magazine cover that raised hundreds of millions of dollars and sold for XYZ. And one of the guilt trips that I, I find is most accessible is that really you should just be just one level up from where you're at. You know, mm-hmm. you're here and it's just obvious that you should step up and that the step up is specifically in size. My observation is that a small business is not a scaled down version of a large business. Yes. It's not a one eighteenth version mm-hmm. of, of, of a large business. It's, it's a fundamentally different organization. So when I'm with this crowd, I have empathy for folks that I feel like may be unduly burdened by the guilt trip that they should graduate from being a small owner operator where, yes, they own a job. But the reality is they could be owning a really well-paid job doing mm-hmm. something that they know, they understand, they appreciate. And instead, the guilt trip is this, is you need to go from that where maybe you have one employee, one assistant to you need to build an organization. Mm-hmm. You need to get to a thousand doors. You need to have 15 employees. And I really just don't believe that there's any way you can generalize about that. Mm-hmm. I believe that you should do that if the act of doing that is what you want to do. But pursuing that purely for a financial means or premise does not make sense to me. How do you relate to uh, the the messaging of what smaller operators are hearing and how they should evaluate thinking about whether or not to actually grow and, and morph the organization into a fundamentally different proposition? Yeah, I you talked about in the beginning here about how you know we're all evolving in our entrepreneurial journey. And this has been something I've been thinking a lot about more lately is you know a lot of the teaching, the books, the podcasts, the resources that we all get are, to your point, geared at larger businesses. And by larger, I even mean... Frankly, most uh, or a lot of small businesses that we look to are much larger. Than, you know, I mean, that ten million dollar business is still a small business, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, you know, so and a lot of those things, to your point, don't just—it's not just a one-for-one scaled-down version of a one million dollar business. There are things that are just fundamentally different, and so I think there's a lot of room for um, teaching and learning on sort of that micro-small where, where we are, and then. I mean, we're all very cognizantly aware of all of the consolidation that's happening. And our industry, frankly, is ripe for consolidation. And so um, I've been saying for you know multiple years now when I talk to folks of like, yeah, I mean, if consolidation is good for you, pursue that. The alternative, I think, is to really niche down, right? Like really get very smart and intentional about who your specific target client is to the point that your target client is dumb if they don't pick you in your business. Right. You become the obvious choice. You become the obvious choice, right? And so there's so many ways to do that, whether it's roping off around a certain neighborhood or a certain type of service that you want to do. I mean, there's just so many ways you could go about niching down. Uh, but I think that is a great way to go. And you, you know, I mean, I got to the point with my business as we were just describing, where I was working about five hours a week. I had a lifestyle business that was at that point now kicking off the cash that, you know, it was it was good. I enjoyed it. And I got bored. Right. So it, which is, you know, classic for most, you know, people uh, in that entrepreneurial journey is like, great. Now, what's the next thing? I'm curious. Did you think, what did you think was going to happen? Like, did you, did you wonder if you were going to get bored? Were you thinking it was going to be a gravy train, more time at the beach? You know, was it, (laughs) was it different than you thought 
having that that luxury that so many would crave yeah. and desire. Yeah, I, I suppose so. You know, I, I, I laugh because I'm thinking again of, of my wife where, you know, I, it's always like, oh, yeah, it's this one project and then the gravy train will be here. And she's like, you've been saying that for the last 20 years. Like, you know, it's, there's always some other thing you don't even quite see yet that's going to come. And so, yeah, I guess I do fool myself into thinking that. But but that's just part of the, the journey is I, I don't know always what the next step is going to be. I always joke around that I make plans in life just so I know what I won't be doing. So. <laughs> make plans in life so you know what you won't be doing. Right, because I mean, how often do you plan out this, you know, futuristic roadmap and then, you know, you you find some other opportunity that you pursue, so. You know, that reminds me, are you, are you a Seinfeld viewer I've, at all? Yes, I've watched a lot of Seinfeld. So there's an episode where George does the exact opposite of what he's inclined to do on dates with women because uh -huh. he comes to the conclusion yeah. that George fundamentally has no idea. <laughs> so doing the exact opposite is the best thing to do. Maybe that's an analog here. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Creating plans, you know what you won't be doing. Yeah. That's interesting. I do think that working through your own delusions is the calling of the entrepreneur mm. to get closer to reality, closer to the bare metal. And that to me is one of the most perplexing and satisfying aspects of entrepreneurship because it means that it's not some crazy skill that I couldn't get or something that I'm not qualified to do. It's just a level of honesty with myself about what's happening, what I want, what my actions are producing in the world. What were some other moments of uh, awakening or honesty in your career where you just had a realization that, that, shifted and changed how you looked at the business? Yeah, I suppose once I sort of like achieved what I thought could be possible and, and realized that, um, you know, that's something that I could help other people with, you know? And so that was really exciting for me, right? To get to some of these numbers that we've been talking about, 4.8 DLER, 283 revenue per unit, 51% earner discretionary earnings. And to realize, you know, there, there there's a way to do this. Um, this wasn't some insurmountable thing uh, that is pie in the sky, right? Like this is real. And, uh, and so then being able to transfer that and help others in the industry with, with some of that same journey uh, has been very exciting and fulfilling for me. I know that firsthand, that yeah. feeling of helping people see things that they couldn't see before. I know that feeling of believing in people when mm -hmm. they didn't believe in themselves. Yeah. I know that feeling of giving people permission to think differently mm -hmm. about what's happening. It's been done for me and I've done it for other people. And it's intensely gratifying because it, it really, it costs nothing. Right. You, know, you can do consulting, you can be, you can be involved in a hands-on right. relationship, but the nub of it, it's just, it's a conversation. It's, yes. it's recognition and Hey, like I've been where you're, yeah. where you're at. I can tell you it can be different. Would you like to hear about yeah, that? Yeah, because so much of it is, and this is kind of a buzzword, I think, but so much of it is limited belief, right? I mean, we convince ourselves of like, oh, but not in my market, or oh, but no, you don't understand this, or, or oh, but that, and trying to help people break through, like, just allow yourself for a moment to believe, and, and then see, yeah, what that, how the transformative that can be. Now, you've had a number of partnerships in your time. Mm -hmm. I have exclusively partnerships. I'm a partner guy. Yes. Which is interesting because I've worked with a lot of partners. I've done a lot of different things and I, I didn't, and I really don't identify. Um, and yet if I'm 
back to the awareness and delusion part, if I identify and look at my behavior, I really enjoy working in partnership models. Mm -hmm. And those partnerships have different dynamics. Each of them is different. I've been paired up with integrators, visionaries, um, all over the gamut. I can't say I've, you know, I've had any horrible situations, but definitely a very differing scope of personalities that I've been matched up with. There's been a lot of joy for me in those partnerships. There's been a lot of self-discovery. There's been a lot of awareness as I've partnered with different people that have dogmatic, rigid views that are all different about the same set of circumstances, mm -hmm. which is a trip. When you talk to five people and they're all looking at the same thing and they all yeah. say five different things, it's, it like, is, huh. yeah. it's like, huh, <laughs> but what does that mean? You know, someone's, someone's wrong. Yeah. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's you, maybe it's me, but there's more awareness. What do you have to say about your experience and your tenure with partnerships? What are your reflections? What would be your advice or feedback for other people that are thinking about or contemplating either getting in or out of a partnership? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the first thing that comes to mind is just core values, right? And again, it maybe for some people that feels like a buzzword, but you know, core values, uh, company culture is not uh, foosball tables and beanbags, like I like to say, right? It's a real thing that when you implement it the right way is really meaningful. And so, you know, taking a good bit of time with your partners to make sure you do share those core values, because anytime there's culture misalignment at the top of the organization, that's extremely challenging. Um, and so to get that cultural alignment, you know, right at the outset, um, it, you know, because you're not, you, what you don't want is for you to all think the same way to your point. Otherwise, you frankly don't need those partners. You actually want partners that think differently, but that share values. And for me, that's always been really important. I mean, confession time here is, uh, and, and I'm now of the age, I hope I'm starting to mature in this, but, you know, a younger version of myself, I just always thought I was the smartest person in the room. And it's very humbling, to your point, to surround yourself with people that you're intentionally going, I want to surround myself with people that are either smarter than me or I at least know are smarter than me in different ways that I'm not smart about. Because the reality is, is there's smart means a lot of different things. And so, so it is very humbling to walk into a problem and to have people share perspectives that like, I wasn't going to think of that perspective. And it was the right solution to get us out of this situation or lead us into the future. And, uh, and, and that is a great, great experience and helps me be a better version of myself, helps all my companies be, you know, better versions of themselves. I've had the same experience about getting better through my partnerships. And I think one thing to, that's important to remember is that you have a partner for a season and for a specific premise or a play. So they're somewhat ephemeral in nature. It's mm -hmm. like a marriage in the sense that you are yoked up with this person. It's yeah. unlike a marriage in the sense that there should really, in my mind, there should not be stigma in getting out. And if it feels like that there is stigma, that means one of two things. Either your contracts were constructed wrong and you know it's going to be a nightmare, um, or there's an attachment issue in the way that you're relating to it. And I dealt with that early on where my identity was so attached to the business that the thought of moving on from a partnership felt like a betrayal. Mm. Like you're betraying, by you moving on, you're betraying me mm. as opposed to, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what you're doing. They're lined up. Dope. Why don't we work together? And if, yeah. it, if it changes, that's okay too. Yeah. What are your reflections on the the attachment that you've had to the business, to the people, 
How would you, what feedback would you have for, for somebody to relate in that way? Yeah, you know, one of my business partners says this a lot, and, it's, and I go back to myself mentally a lot too, is you say, you know, the people that got you here might not be the same people that get you to the next stage. And, and that's been really helpful for me to think through. Um, and that's true about a staffing perspective, but it can be true about any relationship. And again, I'm going to go back to core values and vision alignment. And so if you have a very healthy perspective on the value of core values and a vision alignment, then it can be a very open conversation with a partner to say, you know what, um, this is not a personal situation, but we have now different visions of what the future holds. And there's no point in us trying to work together and constantly be pulling each other. Like that's going to hold all of us back, you back, me back, the company back, our staff back. And so if you can just have some honest perspective to say, look, we either have to have the same vision, either one of our visions or something completely different, or it's okay. Like we'll go in our different ways and take our different visions in different ways. Easier said than done. It is. It takes maturity and just, uh, it, you know, really what it takes is the ability to step outside of yourself and look at your situation uh, objectively. Mm, and, and, yeah. You know, so. Right. That's what I would say. I, I believe it takes belief. Yeah. Belief that we're best served by alignment. Yes. I'm not better served by clinging. Like I, my my lower brain, my less evolved self may have the thought that, you know, if this guy leaves, it's going to hurt me. So sure. I'm going to keep him here. I'm going to hold him here. You said, Matt, you said we were going to do this thing, right. you know, guilting you, whatever. Right. <laughs> as opposed to the more enlightened thought of like, no, that's not going to work. Right. I No, I fundamentally cannot do that. Right. He's going to be unhappy. He's going to resent me. I'm going to resent myself. Right. If you believe in this alignment philosophy, which I talk about with my team members. And I think like brass tacks, what's the practical action item for me, it's conversationally getting ahead of this before it feels heavy. Mm. Like when things are good saying, Hey, you know, by the way, remember alignment, is this working for you? It's working for me, but if right. it's not, that's okay. Right. Like genuinely, right. You're a smart person. You could get a good job somewhere else. And in light of that, if I fire you, you're going to be fine. If you quit, you're going to be fine. So knowing that you're going to be fine somewhere else, why should we settle for anything lower than or less than you being in a role that you find fulfilling and rewarding on whatever levels are most important to you? Yeah, that's great. And, uh, and again, it goes back to, and we're going to harp on again, core values and, and vision, but you know, so many companies, right? Like they don't like core values because they think what it means is it's some corporate gobbledygook that you put on a plaque and stick on the wall. Like, oh, cool. We're honest and whatever, right? And like, again, that's not the right way to do it. So if you're properly implementing core values in your business, it's just a regular weekly, if not daily conversation you're having all throughout your company, sharing stories with each other. And so then it becomes only natural to have that kind of a conversation. And, you know, one of the things I talk a lot about is what I call a culture skill quadrant. And as I look at, and I particularly do this with staff members, but it works with partners too. And the dangerous quadrant is actually when you have somebody that's very high skilled, but low culture fit. Because that leads to toxicity and it leads to a mm. situation mm. you are mm. unlikely to let go of because you think, oh, but that person is so skilled. I don't know what we would do around here without them. But what when, if I just tolerate it? You and, and people do. But again, but it, it, that, that 
culture misalignment will create toxicity around the team and the rest of the team will become bitter and it'll affect job performance in other ways. And so we yeah. hang on to those. And, and so the, I think it's almost like in describing it in this mildly hyperbolic language, we probably do a disservice. If something gets toxic enough, anybody will eventually reach their breaking point and, and do something about it. Mm -hmm. The most interesting actionable question is, what is the minimum amount of dysfunction and toxicity? What is the lowest possible threshold that if, when crossed, you should take action? Mm -hmm. I think that's the best way to frame it. Yeah. Because, it, yeah, clearly, if it's completely dysfunctional, I'm going to do something about it. It's like how little dysfunction should exist before you tell somebody, you know, you really, now's the time. Yeah, which is why, again, and, and some of us are better at this than others, right? And, you know, there, there's a, what's the good book? Fierce Conversations. And so some people, that's hard for them. And, and I get that. They don't want to have those kind of like direct conversations. But if you make it a natural part where you're doing one-on-ones throughout your company on a weekly or every other week yeah. basis, and then you have the small conversations, right? Like, hey, you know, you made this decision last week and, uh, and I see why you made that decision, but it doesn't really fit with the core values that we have here in our company. Like this is probably if we had decided to do this thing this way, that would have been a better reflection of who we are as a company. Well, let's talk about why it's hard because I think you're absolutely right. Why is it hard? What I make up is it's hard because it feels like I'm doing something to you. Sure. Something is going to like I'm, I'm taking an a, a coercive action toward you or against you. Right. Which is the opposite of the, uh, of the idea of alignment. Right. If we're really in pursuit of alignment, then that's inquiry. Right. Hey, I'm checking in. I'm wondering if maybe, remember the alignment thing? I'm wondering if maybe we're misaligned. Let's find out. No bad either way, right? Right. Because this is what happened, and I said this, but you did that. Are we misaligned? Like, right. It's good either way. Right. That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's not me doing something to you. That's just like, hey, we agreed to the alignment thing. I believe in this. I'm hoping you still believe in it. Let's just check in, you know? There's some there's some yeah. lightness to that. And, I, and I'm a firm believer, and this is now taking more of a personal relationship, Ben, but I'm a firm believer that um, having those kind of conversations is actually a reflection of the meaningfulness of the relationship, mm. right? Because, like, if I didn't care about a relationship, why would I bother having that hard conversation with you? Like, we'll just keep it superficial and that's be, totally be avoidant, fine. yeah, like give you no feedback. Yeah, like, who cares? I, I don't care what you think anyway. Why would I bother having a hard conversation? Right. With you? But if I truly care about our relationship, and you know, then I will engage in the hard conversations. I want to pivot this this end section to talk a little bit about technology, a mm. lot of, a little bit about some of the changes that you've made, systems, processes, policy, technology. These are a bunch of things that all get kind of blended up and perceived as being somewhat similar, but they are distinct entities. And if we think about a hierarchical structure, to me, what's at the top, maybe one step down from the top, let's say vision values is at the top, but policy is right below that. Policy mm -hmm. is the expression of your vision and your values and processes and systems cannot make up for bad policy. Yes. That's ever. True. Yeah. All they can do is codify. Yeah. So when you think about what an, the conversation an owner needs to go through to get leverage from technology, because technology is at the bottom Yeah. and I'm a technology vendor and I'm perfectly comfortable saying that, yep. but knowing that it's at the bottom, how do you think about the constituent steps, the conversation, the pre-work 
that needs to be done to get value. Because the easiest thing to do is to swipe a credit card and to sign up for a technology yeah. package. Yeah. Well, I told you at the beginning of our talk that I, I've made all the mistakes and that's why I'm here. And I've made this mistake um, and where we um, conflated policy and process. And we actually jumped right into process thinking that like, that is the meaning of our policy. And what we realized was, is that that was a mistake. And so we backed it up. Uh, and again, this is another value of a partnership. I didn't realize that was a mistake. One of my partners recognized this mistake. So we backed it up and said, you know what? We need to uh, go back through and really just focus on our policies, irrespective. Abstracted. Of, abstracted, irrespective of any technology stack that we may mm, or may not have mm, right now. Mm. Let's just figure out what our policies are. What is it that we want to be doing? Then we can take that information and say, okay, how do we affect that? How do we do that thing? And, um, and then that leads us into a more meaningful conversation about, okay, now was, what is the right tech stack for us to actually implement the policies that we want to have? Okay, so you do that. Now we're at the point where some tech is involved. Again, I hear tech. It's sexy. It sounds interesting. I went to the trade show. I sign up for something. Yeah. What is the discrimination that should be involved for an owner or a business leader to be thinking about taking this all the way home? People tend to think in terms of outcomes, goals, destinations, and less about problems to be solved along the way. Mm -hmm, yeah. What are the, the functional problems and the who's involved that you see as the common pattern of getting to success at that end state? Yeah, I mean, probably the the big picture I think about here is the the hard decision we have to make is um, how many logins do I want my team to have? And so you know, so I've gone from you mm. know in, in the beginning mm. to where I said, okay, I just want to have one platform, and we're going to just make everything work through this all one in platform. one, all in one, and it sounds super appealing. And but typically, the all in one platforms are going to do things about seventy percent well. And, and you are going to have to accommodate a lot. Of, you bend to them. Yes, I've done that. And you bend to them. And so you, you, you now no longer are truly in control of the policy you really want to have. And so then I went the other extreme. And I said, I want best in class for everything we do. Right. And then at some point you like look around and realize, oh, my gosh, my team has 12 logins that they're having to manage. And they have to have all these things open all the time to understand what's going on. And that's not feasible either. And so... Um, I like the way you asked the question here of, you know, make sure you're solving a problem because mm -hmm. it is so mm -hmm. easy to just start writing the checks, right? Like, oh, like that's a super sexy new tech. I want that. I want this. But is it actually solving it? Have you done the work to establish your policy? And is this solving a problem that you have to make, to affect your policy or improve your policy? Um, and so that's a great way to approach it and, and really try to limit your tech stack in a manageable way and actually do the things you want to do. Let's tie it together here at the end. Let's take it back to the who. We see on an increasing basis, the owner wants the juice. They want the power of the tech, but they self-identify openly and honestly. You know, on a good day, I could get motivated and start tinkering. Yeah. But on, <laughs> on day 50, I am not going to land that plane. If, the, if it is... If it is up to me, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Where does working with an RTM fit in? I know I've seen it. What have you seen in terms of hiring RTMs to figure this tech stuff out? Because, I mean, shoot, if that's a possibility, that opens up a ton of doors for people. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I'm sure you, as a technology vendor, see it all the time, right? People that sign up, they think it's an easy button, right? And they 
don't frankly ever use the tech or maybe they only leverage 10, 20% of it. And it's a real problem. And, and it's probably pretty classic of the typical entrepreneur who tends to be more of that visionary squirrel minded, like sounds like a good idea today. And then they moved on to some other idea. It was the right decision so, to sign up, yes. but to get the full value is a different game. To get the full value is a different game because um, all you're buying is the tool, right? You, you, and now you have to figure out how to put the pieces together and make it yours. And so absolutely, um, you know, that's been really important to me. I have a couple of key remote team members on my team that they just make me better. They make your company better. And so they are that um, detail-oriented person that actually they get excitement from that. It is their unique ability. It is their superpower. And, um, and I'm, I can do the work, but I it's not fun for me, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, that's another quadrant that we look at for folks as well is like, okay, where skill meets passion. And so for a lot of people, they maybe have the skill, but not the passion. And so and, and that could kind of be me with technology. I can do it, but I'll get burnt out of it, which means I'll just stop doing it at some point. And so um, having to identify the who. And so anytime you're looking at, you know, kind of look at that skill, passion, quadrant and identify those gaps that exist of like, okay, well, this is something we need to do. We don't have the right who on our team right now where that's their unique ability. That's where skill meets passion for anybody here. That's the job description for what you need to hire for next. And to bring it full circle, absolutely, there are people all over the world that would absolutely love to do that job for your company. We're absolutely seeing that at Lead Simple. We're absolutely seeing RTMs being hired specifically for that function. And it's way more sustainable because there's the build and then there's the maintenance. Right. And if there's one big lie with systems and processes and tech is like, man, if we could just get it done, if we yeah. could just get it built. No, not really. Right. That would be true if you were willing to maintain stasis, but right. you're not. Right. In 99% of the times. Right. You are both the firefighter and the arsonist. You're trying to grow the company. <laughs> yes. yeah. You're breaking it. Right. And so therefore, it's never going to be done. It's right. constant tweaking and changes as new legislative environments happen, mm -hmm. as you grow up or down, staff members change. So that's the long-term play and the case. Because some folks are thinking, well, hey, it's a one-time fee. I'm going to hire this person, but what are they going to do? Right. Yeah, I get that question all the time. People come to me all the time and they're saying, well, can I hire somebody part-time? And you know, we specialize in full-time. And it's what I recommend because the, the caliber of person you want is looking for full-time work most commonly. So if you want to hire them part-time, they're going to get another part-time job somewhere else. Now you're going to race, see who's going to keep it on the longest. But 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 yeah, the, the uh, business owner is thinking, well, I just don't have enough work to keep them busy. And I always say, listen, so one thing I already know about you because you own a business is you have about 10 new ideas every single day and not enough time to implement them. And there are people out there, these you know remote team members, that they want to implement your ideas. Uh, and so, you know, they, and it's hard for us to imagine, but they will take it to the next level and, uh, and keep it running. Final question of the day. What is the best book that you read in the last 12 months? Well, I'm not finished with it, and, uh, but I just picked up and reading Atomic Habits. And James it, Clear. Yeah, and it's been on my bookshelf for too long, and, uh, and finally somebody kicked me in the butt and said, time to read it. And uh, my, my biggest early takeaway, um, which was very interesting for me, was this idea that, um, you know, because I am a big long-term vision goal planning person, and, and he starts off the book by saying, like, look, that's not bad. It sets you in the right direction to where you want to head, but it's not the thing that gets you there. 
you know, it's actually the minutia day-to-day systems, habits, and processes that you're going to develop that actually gets you to this goal, whatever the case may be. And one of the things that for the longest time, I've wanted to be the type of person that um, that gets up early and then the first thing I do is work out because I know if I don't work out first thing in the day, not I, it's not going to happen later. But in reading this book, I realized, you know what? Um, I have these habits that I enjoy doing. So I start off my day with a Wordle and I'm doing Duolingo and I actually like to get up early before everybody else. But I can do these things and then put pieces into my morning routine, like getting my workout equipment out, putting on my workout clothes when I first get up, that will then put me in a position to be like, okay, well, now's the time to work out mid-morning after the kids are off to school. And that's been working out great for me. I just started that new uh, morning routine. And so Atomic Habits. Shoot, alignment. It's yeah. been on my list too, and I haven't checked it out. All right, I recommend it. Matt, I got to tell you, as a vendor, working with people like you in the industry is a real joy. I think there's nothing more on the vendor side you can ask than to work with clients that are going places and doing interesting things. So thank you for allowing me to be a part of your journey. Awesome. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks for coming on. Hey guys, quick message on the lead simple front. We are hiring aggressively into a bunch of different roles right now. Head of customer success, finance and accounting manager, customer implementation pilots, customer success associates, software engineers, all over the place. So my question to you is, do you know somebody? Do you know somebody that might be interested or a fit for one of these roles? You can see the full scope at lead simple dot com forward slash careers head of customer success finance and accounting manager uh, are the ones that we are focused on the most right now but i'd love to have a conversation about any of these roles so if you have questions you can email me at jordan at leadsimple.com to understand the scope the depth and to know if anybody in your network might be a fit We are a live crew, highly competitive, a little bit nerdy, and we love to have a really good time along the way as we work. So if this sounds like a fit for somebody that you know, love to hear from them. Thanks, guys. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me me an email, jordanatleadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.